You know, if I sit back and think about it, sometimes I find it strange in those situations where I contribute nothing to a victory and yet I share in the celebration. Let me explain what I mean. For example, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl this year. I love to keep reminding people of that since I'm from Missouri. I didn't play in the game. I didn't coach anybody. I contributed very little to their salaries. I did contribute a little because I went to a game last year. But it's like my shouting on the couch somehow helps them win, right? I contribute nothing to the victory, but when that field goal goes through in the final seconds, what do I say? We won. Who's the we here? (laughs) I feel a sense of triumph. Now, on a more serious note, another example, I felt quite odd coming home from the first Gulf War. Why? Well, I sat on a ship for months. I never set foot in Kuwait or in Iraq. I never fired a shot. I never took a prisoner of war, and yet I come home and I'm treated like a hero. I benefit from the celebration without really playing any part in the victory. Now, of course, both of those examples are ridiculously foolish, pale in comparison to the benefits of our union with Christ in His victorious work on the cross. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the justice of His Father alone for sinners. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan alone. And yet, as we return to Psalm 22 tonight, we're going to see that while suffering alone... Part of Christ's comfort was the hope of sharing that triumph with us. But before we return to Psalm 22, let's first read Matthew's account of the crucifixion. Matthew's account in Matthew 27, if you would go there with me, please, before, Matthew, or before Psalm 22. Matthew 27 We're going to pick up in verse 27, read down to verse 50. Matthew 27, 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. 
And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Last week we began our study of Psalm 22 looking at the immediate meaning to David and to every saint who has felt abandoned by God at some point in their life. But many scholars have noted that we have no record in Scripture of David ever facing the full extent of the suffering he describes in Psalm 22. And so the common view among conservative scholars is that the Holy Spirit inspired David as he wrote this psalm to speak beyond his own experience, to speak prophetically of his greater Son who was to come the Lord Jesus Christ. If Isaiah 53 can be called the gospel according to Isaiah, then William Plummer says we can call Psalm 22 the gospel according to David. We walked through Psalm 22 last week, verse by verse, in order. This week we're going to look at it a little differently. I've divided the psalm into four sections, but we're actually going to change the order a little bit so that we look at these sections to match the intensification of Jesus' suffering on the cross. So first, we will look at torment of body. And then after looking at the torment of His body, we'll look at the taunting of His enemies, and then the torment of His soul, and then a triumph to share. So let's begin by looking at the torment of body. If you'll go with me now to Psalm 22, we're going to pick up in the middle of the psalm, verse 14. David writes, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 14 begins, I am poured out like water. Now, primarily, that's a very vivid description of his strength, even his life being poured out like water. But in Christ's crucifixion, it is literally fulfilled another way, isn't it? John records that when the soldiers come to check if he is dead, what do they do? They pierce his side with a spear, and what comes out? Blood and water. John tells us as an eyewitness. Because Jesus was unable to breathe properly when suspended on that cross, the fluid built up in his lungs and around his heart, a crucifixion victim actually drowned. That's what finally killed them. And with the upward angle of that spear from below up into the chest, the fluid is able to escape and Jesus' life literally pours out like water. And then he says, my bones are out of joint. All my bones are out of joint. Historians record that Roman executioners enjoyed the cruelty of hoisting that cross up after they've nailed the victim to it and then dropping it into the hole. Now Jesus' wrists are nailed like this. He cannot move. And the entire weight of his body is jarred downwards. What do you think that does to the shoulders? His shoulders are dislocated. And because his arms are suspended like this, he must push up to breathe for the diaphragm to work. Can you imagine every breath pushing up on the nail through your feet with dislocated shoulders? All my joints, all my bones are out of joint. No wonder, he says, next, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. As he struggles to breathe, he slowly feels his life draining from his body. And then he says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. In verse 15, He's suffering extreme dehydration at this point. He's already suffered tremendous blood loss from the scourging, sweating profusely from stress and pain, and now hanging exposed in the hot sun. John records for us in John 19, verses 28 and 29, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Jesus says to fulfill Scripture. Now, he could be consciously fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 15, or more likely perhaps Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am sick. And I looked for sympathy, and there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. 
They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar, sour wine, to drink. His tongue cleaves to his jaws in thirst. And then he says, they have pierced my hands and my feet in verse 16. Now, if you study this passage, you'll find out there is some debate about the, the translation of that word pierced, but the majority of the six or seven commentators that I studied said that this is the best translation. They pierced my hands and my feet, written hundreds of years before the Romans ever invented crucifixion. And then he says, my bones are exposed. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Being exposed naked was part of the shame of the cross, adding to our Lord's humiliation. As I preached through Genesis 3 recently, the connection struck me. Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness. They hid in the trees, and God made them clothes. To undo their fall, Jesus hangs naked in public shame on a tree, and men plunder his clothes. Well, the physical torment of the cross is bad enough, but those responsible for Jesus' torture, oh, they're not content with that. No, they have to add to His torment by taunting Him. We see the taunting of His enemies, our second point, in verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord, let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. I don't know of any greater proof of human depravity than the cruelty shown to Christ on the cross. On this day, it is as if all humanity lines up taking their turn, competing to outdo one another in mocking the Son of God. His friend Judas starts it off, mocking him with a kiss of betrayal. Then the high priest and the temple guards mock him and hit him. Then Herod and his soldiers dress him in a fine purple robe and make fun of him. And then Pilate's soldiers give him a crown of thorns and spit in his face and strike him on the head. And then Pilate mocks him with the sarcastic inscription, King of the Jews. And then the priests and scribes abandon all self-dignity and lead the crowd in taunting him as he hangs there in torment. And even the criminals crucified with him join in slandering the sinless one. Surely he is a reproach, a despised worm, and everyone is sneering at him. 
And their depraved hearts are so blind, their hatred of truth so strong, the priests, the Pharisees, see Psalm 22 being fulfilled before their eyes, and they dare to quote verse 8 to Jesus on the cross, mocking Him. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Go back to Matthew 27, or, or you can just listen. But in Matthew 27, 43, here's the mocking of the priests. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now, in my New American Standard, that's all in caps. Why? Because it's a quote. Before Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1 from the cross, they quote verse 8 at Him. He thinks He's righteous? <laughs> he's a madman. He's a blasphemer. God doesn't delight in Him. He deserves to die. Now Think about how much that stung our Lord. Twice, his father has already voiced his affirmation from heaven, hasn't he? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. At the baptism, at the transfiguration. And yet here they state what seems to be obvious. Jesus, if God delights in you, then why has he handed you over to this shameful death? Surely this is proof you are deceived. I still can't get over the fact that they quote Psalm 22 to Jesus, mocking Him. Sure, they're blinded by their sin, but I find it awfully hard to believe that some of them did not recognize who He was. All the fulfilled prophecies, all the miracles, all the authoritative teaching... And Romans 1 confirms for us, even if they knew He was the Messiah, they would still reject Him. Because He's not the Messiah they wanted. They saw His holiness and they hated Him. They saw His goodness and they hated Him. They saw the proofs of His deity and they hated Him. He was an unwanted interference. He was an uncomfortable condemnation of their self-righteousness. And they gleefully insult Him as He dies. And so the torment of His body is aggravated by the taunting of His enemies. But those two combined are nothing compared to the torment of His soul. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. If you remember from last week, that word is literally roaring. My roaring in pain. James Boyce points out that throughout the first half of this day of his death, we see Jesus' mind is always on others. Have you noticed that? As He carries the cross to Golgotha and the women are weeping, He tells them, don't weep for Me, weep for yourselves and for your children 
and for the coming judgment because Israel has rejected their Messiah. As the soldiers nail him to the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. From the cross, he's thinking about his mother making sure that she'll be cared for by John. And yes, even one of the criminals, he reassures him of pardon and paradise. But all of that changes at noon. At noon, a miraculous darkness descends, and now he is utterly alone doing business with God on our behalf. And as Plummer put it, this is judgment day for our Savior. He's already stood before the high priest and been sentenced to death as a blasphemer. He stood before the Roman governor and was sentenced to death as a troublemaker. But now he stands before his father. The holy judge of the universe bearing my sin and yours. And he hears those awful words, guilty. Guilty. Let justice have its vengeance on him. No Mercy. And the hymn writer speaks poetically of the sun refusing to shine as his maker dies, and rightly so. And I've spoken of the father hiding his son's suffering in the darkness as something too sacred for the world to see. But what was one of Jesus' most common descriptions of hell? Cast him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And from noon until three, Jesus is flung into that outer darkness. And his father turns his face away. It has been the father's delight for all of eternity to behold His glory in the face of His Son. It was His Father's delight in creation to watch His Son speak the stars into existence. It was His Father's delight in the incarnation to watch His Son's life of perfect obedience and worship. And Jesus often spoke of the joy of fellowship with His Father and the comfort that He was never alone, that His Father was with Him, but in these hours of darkness, that eternal fellowship is broken. There is no smile from His Father to sweeten His suffering. There is nothing but the Father's holy hatred for the sin that He has become. The prophet Habakkuk declares, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. And the Apostle Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians 5, He who know no sin became sin for us. For us. For us. No mercy was shown to Him that we might receive mercy. 
He was forsaken that we might be reconciled. And after hours of enduring an eternity of wrath for all who would trust in Him, the Son cries out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not an accusation to the Father. He knows why He's forsaken. It's pure agony. He is voicing His distress. And there's no more fitting cry in Scripture than this. And yet, even at the height of His torment, the man Jesus Christ still has faith. The Father is still my God. And I think we see here a plea for vindication as well. He is the righteous man of Psalm 22, suffering for others, and he's trusting that his Father will reward that. And from the Gospel accounts, it seems that very shortly after that distressed cry, the darkness lifts. Jesus knew that he had been heard. From the horns of the wild oxen you answered, Jesus knew that His atoning sacrifice had been accepted. And in those final moments on the cross, Jesus' mind went from the first verse of Psalm 22 to the end of Psalm 22. The Apostle John says that to fulfill Scripture, he asked for a drink. And then he gathered that last ounce of strength for one final cry of victory. It is finished which could also serve as a loose translation of the Hebrew of the last phrase of Psalm 22. He has done it. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. A triumph to share. A triumph to share. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard Verse 22 is specifically quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 about the incarnation and explaining that Christ had to take the nature of His brethren to become a merciful high priest. You know, in, in the Gospels, in the Gospel records of the resurrection, it's interesting. In Matthew 28, when the women see the angels in the empty tomb, the angels tell them, Go tell his disciples he is risen. Go tell his disciples. But in John 20, when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene alone, what does he say? Go tell my brethren. Go tell my brothers. I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. I will tell of your name to my brethren. Or in the words of verse 24, Go tell my brethren, God has not despised my affliction. 
but he has accepted my sacrifice. Go tell them he hid his face for a moment, but he has heard my cry. Go tell my brethren that they can now be assured the Father will never hide his face from them, and he will always hear their cry. And then look at verse 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. David here is referring to what was called the thanks offering in Leviticus 7. When God had given someone a special blessing or some great deliverance, that person would bring a thank offering to the temple. And then as that animal was roasted on the altar, the worshiper would stand there and declare what God had done for them. And then the roasted meat was shared with all their friends and family as a feast of celebration. Their sacrifice to God became a blessing and a benefit to others. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. What did Jesus say to his disciples during the Last Supper? Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. I'm that offering, burned on the altar, from which you will feast. What was one of the blessings of sharing in this sacrifice? Verse 26, let your heart live forever. Eternal life. What did Jesus tell the crowd in John 6? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. May your heart live forever. Not only would Christ's sacrifice satisfy all who seek Him, but it also secured His expanding kingdom. Moving on to verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve Him, and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. At last, at last, God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. At last, Psalm 2 is fulfilled. God has set His Son on the throne in Zion as King, and He's given Him the worship of the nations as His inheritance. And men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the prosperous and the poor in verse 29, generation after generation in verse 30, redeemed by His blood will gather at His throne to feast from His goodness and to worship. (laughs) And there we are, church. There we are, right here in Psalm 22. And what are we doing until that great feast? 
verse 31, declaring his righteousness. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. He has done it. It is finished in the cross of His Son, our God forever declared His righteousness. Or as the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 3, in the cross of His Son, God forever vindicated His righteousness in declaring sinners like us to be righteous. He has done it. The infinite wisdom of our God made a way for holiness to forgive sin. The infinite love of our God offered Himself in our place. The infinite power of God endured His own wrath and defeated death. He alone has done it. Now, church, let's declare it. In closing... I must ask, Christ alone has accomplished salvation, but has He done it for you? Has His work become your salvation yet? Have you trusted in His sacrificial death as your only hope of being right before God? Have you come to Christ not to be rescued from bulls and lions and dogs, but to be rescued from the wrath of holy God, from whom there is no other escape? Have you come to have your soul satisfied in Jesus alone? Have you come with the nations to worship and to serve Christ alone? If you have not, I plead with you. Cry out to Christ to save you. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know what that looks like, come talk to me after this meeting. Or ask somebody sitting next to you. They will be more than thrilled to help you. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, How we rejoice tonight to call you our Father. And that privilege was bought by your Son who for those hours felt the abandonment of his Father as he became our sin. Oh God, we rejoice in the majestic salvation that you have accomplished on our behalf. Oh God, would you help us to declare it? To declare it to one another when we're down, when we're discouraged, when we are straying into sin, to remind one another of who we are in the Lord Jesus and how we should live. And would you help us to declare it in our community? on the campuses, in our homes, in our workplaces. And Lord, with the nations, would you be pleased to call a vast multitude from here 
from our communities, from our workplaces, from the campus, that they would come to honor Jesus Christ with their worship, with their praise and gratitude for His saving work. Lord, would You do this for the glory of Your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.